If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from the makers of BBC History magazine. Nominated for several awards at this weekend's Oscars ceremony, The Zone of Interest is one of the most acclaimed and talked about films of 2024. Directed by Jonathan Glazer and loosely based on a novel of the same name by Martin Amis, the film focuses on the life of Rudolf Hearst and his family during the Second World War. Hearst, at the time, was commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp. So in today's episode, we're exploring Hearst's story with Professor Richard J. Evans, one of the world's leading experts on Nazi Germany, who was also a consultant on the original novel. Richard spoke to Rob Attar. So Richard, we're talking today about Rudolf Hearst because his story is at the centre of the new film, The Zone of Interest. And I gather that you actually advised Martin Amis on the book, which the film was loosely based. Well, could you tell us about the work you did on the book? I'd met Martin Amis because the Wiener Holocaust Library a few years ago had a series of public discussions between historians of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and novelists who'd written using that as a subject. And so he wrote an earlier book called Time's Arrow, which was a fictional 
reminiscences of a Nazi war criminal told backwards in time. So he kind of wakes up from death and it proceeds backwards until he goes to sleep at the moment just before he's born. And it's a wonderfully virtuoso piece of writing, quite, quite extraordinary, because he peels back time and begins to reveal, of course, the crimes he's involved in and then why he's involved in them. So when Martin Amos returned to that subject for his novel, The Zone of Interest, he got in touch with me and asked if I would read through it just to check for historical accuracy. So of course I did. I'm a great admirer of his work. And I found about 50 small historical errors of one sort and another and corrected them for him. And he was extremely grateful. So that's how I got involved with The Zone of Interest. It's an extraordinary book. It kind of tries to expose and explore what Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, in referring to Adolf Eichmann, one of the main organisers of the Holocaust, described as the banality of evil. Here you have a man who is running a death factory over over a million people are murdered and it portrays his home life just outside the camp of Auschwitz where he was commandant from 1940 to 1943 and again in the last months of the camp where the extermination facilities were opened up again in 1944 for over 400,000 Hungarian Jews who were transported there by the Nazis after Germany had invaded and taken over Hungary. And it shows Hurst, the commandant's life at home with his wife and his children and a few suggestive and revealing moments when, for example, he has sex with a female prisoner, which was the case in the actual Rudolf Hurst, the actual man, and a number of small incidents. But it's essentially, I think, does stick to the novel in the sense it is about the possibility of a normal life for a mass murderer. He's not shown as a psychopath or a monster or a demon. He's shown as a very ordinary man. But, of course, it departs from the book quite radically in a number of different ways. In particular, of course, it smooths out the uh, sexual aspects of the Hearst family's dysfunctional nature and portrays their families being completely ordinary. And in his autobiography, which he was made to write by the Polish authorities just before he was executed after the war, he does say the stress of the job got to him, his marriage was not in a very good state, he drank very heavily and, and so on. And they kind of edited out of the, of the film. It would be really good now if we could dig a bit deeper into this character, Rudolf Hearst, who is the centre of the Zone of Interest film. So coming on to his early life, what do we know about Hearst before he gets involved with the Nazi movement? Well, like a lot of the leading Nazis, he was comparatively young. So he was born in 1901 and grew up in a strict Catholic family. And extraordinarily, when he was only 14, he managed to get into the German army during the First World War and had a number of engagements, was, was on the front and so on. Uh, but in the Middle East is where he was sort of seconded to the Ottoman uh, Empire, to Turkey, which was an ally of the German Empire in World War I. So his only life, the only life he'd known really, apart from some schooling to which he returned at the end of the war briefly, was in the armed forces. And of course that inculcated in him a certain kind of attitude towards Germany's enemies they were to be fought. And when he finished the war, 
he sort of saw, like many Nazis, politics as a kind of continuation of warfare. So he joined what was one of what was known as the Freikorps, who were paramilitary units formed behind the Eastern Front to fight against Poland. Poland was a new country formed by the Treaty of Versailles, and it incorporated a lot of territory that Germany had held before World War I. So he was, again, went straight into kind of another kind of uh, fighting, another kind of warfare, and then continued this after the war and after the unsuccessful engagement with, with the Poles in the West. And here he then led a group of extreme nationalist paramilitaries in the murder, brutal murder, beating to death of a man they thought had betrayed a German right-wing hero, Schlageter, who had been involved in a campaign of sabotage in the Ruhr, in the western side of Germany, against the French occupation. The French occupied the Ruhr in order to extract reparations, financial obligations, which the treaty obliged the Germans to pay for having started the war, as they, as they put it. And Hearst was then arrested for that and imprisoned for six years out of a sentence of 10 years. So Hearst spent much of, about half of the Weimar Republic time, the new Germany, in jail. So he was an extreme right-wing activist, a fanatical nationalist, and a man who was prepared to kill and murder in the name of a kind of extreme concept of the nation and its interests. And it's at that point then that he joined the Nazi party. Uh, there's some speculation because he fought in the war in the Middle East uh, with an Ottoman unit, he must surely have been aware of the genocide of the Armenians carried out by the Ottomans and their forces in 1915 to 16. Uh, there's no direct evidence, but he was certainly not, not just used to shooting, killing, murdering. It was his life. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Although we've talked earlier about this idea of him being this kind of family man, Hearst, from quite early on in his life, is a man who is prepared to engage in extreme violence and has, you know, has a very extreme political viewpoint. So he isn't just an ordinary man, is he? No, he's not. He's never known a peaceful life. And he's been brought up from his early teens to regard with kind of horror, brutality and, and extreme violence the enemies of the Reich, the enemies of Germany, people he thinks are the enemies of Germany as a fair game to be hunted down, killed, maltreated, tortured, and, and, and so on. Hearst joins the Nazi party. He clearly shares a lot of the similar kind of ideological ground with other leading Nazis. How far at this point is he also an anti-Semite? Because clearly he will go on to help orchestrate the murder of over a million Jews. Is, is this something he, he already has a passion for earlier in his life? The Nazis believed that the Jews, through their racial inheritance and their character, the world over were engaged in a ceaseless campaign of subversion, of destruction of civilization. This is a massive conspiracy theory. They were conspiring every, everywhere, even if they didn't know they were conspiring to destroy Germany and to destroy civilization. And certainly he bought into that. He was a member of the SS, the Nazi quasi-military group, which was organized by Heinrich Himmler, the architect of the, of the Holocaust. And part of their ideology, this, this belief in this conspiracy theory that the Jews had to be destroyed. How does Hearst become the commandant of Auschwitz? The SS, very quickly after the Nazi seizure of power, took over the concentration camps which had been set up initially, beginning with Dachau, just outside Munich, to imprison and, as they described it, re-educate enemies of the Third Reich, enemies of the Nazi party. The enemies of the Reich, mainly in 1933-34, the early stages of the Nazi regime, were mostly communists, and socialists. So these are two mass parties that had opposed the Nazis. Indeed, in the last free elections of the Weimar Republic in November 1932, the two left-wing parties, communists and socialists, gained more votes than the Nazis did. So they had to be stopped uh, by any means necessary. And Hearst was appointed to the death's head formations, as they were called, of the SS, who ran the concentration camps. And he proceeded through a series of appointments in concentration camps until he was made commandant of Auschwitz, which was a labor camp initially, and then uh, uh, began became expanded massively. He was in charge of actually setting it up in 1940 and expanding it until there were three camps. There was the labor camp, there was a, an industrial camp run by the German Die Trust, Ige Farben, a chemical company, trying to 
create synthetic rubber because the Nazis were short of raw materials, and then an extermination camp, Auschwitz-Birkenau, whose main function was simply to murder people. And uh, Hess, because his behaviour with extreme brutality and commitment to the cause uh, and following the uh, orders and the, the pattern laid down by Theodor Eicher, who was the man who was put in charge of Dachau in the middle of 1933 after the, the initial camp had been very disorganized and very chaotic and very corrupt, uh, he was, uh, Eicher set the rules of the concentration camps and Hearst, as he says in his autobiography, is a an admirer of Eicher and tried to put his methods into operation and that got him further up the hierarchy until he was put in charge of Auschwitz. There he showed a lot of organising ability, I think, by getting hold of raw materials, building, constructing it, and also he experimented with killing facilities. And it was Hearst really who came up with the idea of poison gas, of kind of insecticide or delousing gas, Zyklon B, which was used then to murder over a million Jewish prisoners. Previously, Nazi extermination camps had been simply run by putting exhaust fumes from lorries into an enclosed space where the people, the unfortunate victims were enclosed. And also, of course, very large numbers, we should not forget, were killed by shooting, shooting the victims into pits and starving them in ghettos. But it was Hearst who came up with the kind of most efficient means of mass murder. So Hearst then is integral to the process whereby more than a million people are murdered at Auschwitz. He's at the centre of this. He runs this until 1943 when he's moved to a more senior administrative position. The film shows this very, very well. Again, he's regarded as a success. And we have to remember that that included really terrible, sadistic brutality. He had arrest cells built where the prisoner could only stand up. He penned in prisoners to unheated spaces. And the, the winter in that part of Eastern Europe, of course, is extremely harsh and many, many died. He was regarded because of this brutality and because of this efficiency in killing large numbers of victims as a success. So he went up to the headquarters, as the film shows, in Berlin. But in May 1944, as I mentioned, then Hungarian Jews were started to be rounded up by the Nazis and sent, some 430,000 of them were sent to Auschwitz-Birkenau. So Hearst is seen by the SS authorities, by the administrators of the camps, and the final solution, as the Nazis call it, of the Jewish problem in Europe, a problem entirely their own invention, of course. He was seen as the man to process, in other words, to murder this uh, unprecedentedly large number of Jews. The main campaign to murder Jews from all over Europe had run from the spring of 1942 up to the late summer of 1943 in a series of camps. But Auschwitz now remained without much massacring of Jews after the main, this main phase ended in the late summer, early autumn of 1943. So it was seen as the place, in the view of the SS bosses, of Himmler in particular, the place where uh, these Hungarians would be sent to. And it's, of course, it's actually technically in Germany. It's a part of Poland that's annexed by Germany. 
but it's not that far away from Hungary, so that's where they are sent. And he remains in, in command of it until the end of the war, although he's also got a position at uh, Ravensbrück, which is another camp for women. What do we know of Hearst's motivations for his active participation in genocide? Is it cruelty, sadism, anti-Semitism, loyalty to Nazism? What's really driving him at this point? He sort of tries to explain this in this autobiography, which is available. It's translated into into English. Anybody can read it. And he doesn't really confront it very well. He converted back to the Catholicism in which he was brought up after the end of the war, after his arrest, and when he's in prison awaiting execution in Poland. And he then begins to say that he regrets it, he feels guilty, he feels ashamed of what he's done. His motivation, he basically says, is that when he was brought up in this rather strict household in Germany, he, and then from the age of 14, remember, in the war, he learned, above all, obedience. But of course, this is a kind of typical Nazi war criminal's excuse, you know, and the cliche, I was only obeying orders. He took pride, and this comes through very strongly in his autobiography, pride in his efficiency, pride in his resourcefulness in getting hold of materials and the funds and so on to build Auschwitz. It's rather comparable to another Nazi, one who survived the war, Albert Speer, the Minister of Munitions, in his memoirs. Again, he's very proud of the way in which he can make the war economy more efficient in 1944 and never asks what for? What's the purpose? What's the aim? And there's no fundamental questioning uh, by Hearst of why he's doing what he's doing. I don't think he's even aware of it. And as I said, it's really important to remember how young he was when he started, when he entered the war, when he started fighting, and how obedience, in a way, was the key stone of his, his life as a soldier from, from the age of 14. That doesn't, of course, excuse what he was doing. He was not unintelligent, but he was somebody who entirely lacked the facility for self-reflection and for there's somehow there's no moral compass there at all. Hearst's motivation is, I think, he thinks he is serving Germany. He's serving the Reich, he's serving the Führer, he's serving Himmler, the SS, and he's carrying out a necessary purpose, which is to destroy Germany's enemies. And again, we have to remember that the Jews, of course, entirely innocent of this, but in the eyes of the Nazis, they were Germany's enemies, which is absolutely kind of paranoid conspiracy theory, a delusion, but Hearst shared this. So while he was in this position as commander to Auschwitz, what kind of a home life was he living? Well, the commandant had a house and grounds and a garden uh, as shown in the the movie, uh, just outside the the walls of the the, the main camp, but um, Auschwitz was in a way intended to be a kind of ideal Nazi settlement in Eastern Europe. So there was a town there where the officials mostly lived with their families. They had a kind of social life. They had a cultural life, but. If you, you can read the, the, the memoirs and statements by people, SS people and their families there. And, of course, the smell of burning flesh, the, the, the chimneys and the crematoria, all of this was pervasive, all, all pervasive. 
The film tries to suggest this by showing chimneys in the camp, the other side of the garden wall of the commandant's house, belching smoke. You can, they can't really convey how terrible the smell was, but that was all a part of it. And, of course, they had slaves, essentially, domestic slaves. So the prisoners supplied uh, the domestic labour that kept the, kept the family going, and that's true of other families as well. And that's shown very well in the film. Do we know how far Hersey's family were aware of what was happening at the other side of the wall? And if they knew, do we know whether they were in support of it? Hersey got married relatively young, and his wife was most certainly a very committed and convinced Nazi and extreme right-wing partisan. So insofar as she knew what was going on, she certainly, I think, approved it, eliminating the enemies of the Reich. A lot of Germans, after the end of the war, claimed they had known nothing at all of what was going on, not about the Holocaust, the mass extermination of millions of Jews, the cruelty, uh, and so on. And one cannot really believe that. But, of course, there was a convention whereby they didn't really talk about it at home. Home was meant to be a kind of refuge from these horrible realities. And Hearst and his wife, I think, were not very likely that they discussed these things, but certainly knowledge was there. And how do you think it was possible for people to be so desensitised to the unbelievable acts of violence taking place so very close to them? Well, again, uh, there were screams, of course, and there were sometimes and shouts. The film plays the sounds in the background. But I think they all, the family, compartmentalised their their lives. They just shut that part of it out. It's very conventional in conservative German society that you didn't really talk about what the man did at work. It was, you could put that's in one compartment and then home is in, in another. It doesn't mean a wife and kids were, were ignorant, of course. And would you say that was typical then? I mean, clearly Hearst was not a typical member of German society at this point, but is this being played out more broadly across Germany? Yes, I mean, there are examples of concentration camp commandants whose wife would play a full part in what was going on. I mean, the story is entirely credible that in a few cases, the wife would actually take up a rifle and start shooting the prisoners, for example, or indulging in acts of cruelty towards prisoners who were supplied to them by the SS as slave domestic labour. There's one notorious woman, Ilse Koch, who was a wife of a concentration camp commandant and who was put on trial after the war because there were a lot of stories, many of them sensationalized and, and I think rather exaggerated, but there's no doubt that she took advantage of the situation. There's a lot of corruption in the SS. Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, boasted that his men had not been corrupt, but there are many instances of how they embezzled funds, how they used their situation to their own advantage. And Hearst indeed himself was on, under investigation at one point for, for corruption. And the families, of course, shared in full in this. Auschwitz itself was liberated at the start of 1945. What happens to Hearst at that point onwards? What happened to the Nazi perpetrators at the end of the war is very interesting. A, a lot of them committed suicide. If you look at the leading Nazis like Hitler himself, of course, 
Goebbels, the propaganda minister, a number of other ministers, regional leaders, Gauleiter, generals, senior army officers, top bureaucrats, judges. I mean, there's a mass kind of suicide at the end of the war. But some, and those included Hearst, decided to go underground and try and make their way in the post-war Germany as well as they could. And he did. He dived underground, took on a false identity, but he was recognised, not surprisingly, and arrested. The rule after the end of the war with war crimes trials was that you were put on trial in the country where the crime had been committed. People often forget that. There was not just the major war criminals, and uh, Hearst gave some evidence to the major war crimes trial at Nuremberg. There are also many different levels, all the way down to concentration camp guards. There were thousands of trials, a lot of them held in Poland, some in Italy, some in France, as well as in, in Germany. So it was in Poland, post-war, that Auschwitz was now located. During the war, it had been part of Germany. So that's where Hearst was tried. He was found guilty. As I said, he wrote his autobiography in prison while he was awaiting execution. And then at the request of some former prisoners at Auschwitz, he was taken back to what was left of the camp and publicly hanged there, the last public hanging in Poland, 1947. Now, as you alluded to earlier, um, Hearst did admit his crimes after the war. How important was that for trials of Nazis more broadly, the fact you had a leading member, of leading architect of the Holocaust, admitting what happened? It's not very common. It's quite striking how many leading Nazis, middle-ranking Nazis, refused to admit they'd done anything particularly wrong. So Hess was a bit unusual like that. That's because he recovered his Catholic faith, the faith he'd been brought up in. Whether that was genuine or not uh, is very hard hard to tell. But the same is true of one or two others, Hans Frank, the governor general of Poland, for example. But most of the others didn't admit they'd done anything wrong, so it wasn't very common. And by the time that Hearst was executed, to, uh, you know, he died in 1947, he was executed in 1947. And by that time, the whole atmosphere was changing. Germany was divided up between the Soviet zone of British, French and American zones in the West, which eventually became East Germany, the Soviet zone, and West Germany, the three Western zones. And so Hearst's execution, even more, his autobiography when it was published, fell into the Cold War period. And there the Allies were rapidly backtracking on the pursuit, prosecution of Nazi war criminals. There was a widespread feeling among the Allies that Western Germans needed to be bolstered. They didn't need to be reminded of the crimes that Germany had committed. Otherwise, there was a danger they might fall into the hands of the communists if, if they were too badly, badly treated. So already, but by the time that Hearst was tried and executed, there was a, a feeling, particularly in West Germany, that this was... Uh, unjust, that the war crimes trials were simply victor's justice and what the people who were condemned and executed had claimed that they were just obeying, obeying orders or that they hadn't done what they claimed they'd done, that was broadly speaking correct. 
So Germans saw themselves very quickly after the war and above all the Cold War as victims. There wasn't really a reckoning with German guilt and responsibility for the crimes of Nazism until the late 60s and early 70s. At the time of the Eichmann trial in the early 1960s, Hannah Arendt comes up with this very famous phrase, the banality of evil, which has been resurfaced recently in regard to Zone of Interest and Rudolf Hirsch. How far do you think his story illustrates that concept? Well, Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, attended and reported on the trial of Eichmann in Jerusalem. What was so striking uh, to her and to many others was how Eichmann in the sort of glass box which was used for the defendant in the courtroom, and it's all broadcast worldwide, he looked so ordinary. He wasn't a slavering monster, he wasn't shouting, he wasn't really violent, pathological. He just seemed to be like an ordinary man. And I think that is what she meant by the banality of evil. I think her phrase has been misunderstood in a lot of ways. For example... It did not mean that Eichmann was just non-ideological and just, as the phrase, common phrase went from Nazi war criminals, he was not just obeying orders. You know, he was an anti-Semite and a Nazi by conviction. He wasn't politically neutral at all, although he tried to present himself like that in the court. But I don't think Arendt was fooled. And indeed, he got away. He'd gone underground and managed to get out of Europe and go to Argentina, where the dictator, Juan Perón, was looking for people with expertise of one kind or another. Eichmann seemed to be one of these to the Peronist regime, though he, his expertise is actually fairly limited. He and his old Nazi pals in Argentina used to meet and their conversations were recorded and they've been made available that you can read them. And they were all unrepentant. They all thought they'd been doing the right thing. They're all determined to deny the Holocaust although the ideology was still there, uh, they still believed, as political exiles often do, that they were going to make a comeback and that Nazism would regenerate itself. It's complete illusion, of course. There's no chance of that happening whatsoever. So Eichmann was not politically neutral. He just wasn't a civil servant obeying orders without any kind of ideology behind it. And that came through in the trial, and I don't think Arendt was fooled either. And to what extent do you think Hearst is a, is similar to Eichmann? Can you see any parallels between them? There are parallels, obviously. They're both in the SS. They both believe in Nazism. They both believe that the enemies of Nazism, in particular the Jews, had to be exterminated because they were trying to destroy German and European, indeed world civilization. a kind of paranoid delusion which... It's hard to understand how anybody could fall for it. But they were similar in that way. But Eichmann was an administrator. He organized the mass extermination of the Jews. He wasn't hands-on in the way that Huss was. Huss participated in several many acts of violence, for example. He was there at the extermination, directing it, and Eichmann basically was doing it, as it were, remotely. We are talking now because this Zone of Interest film has come out recently and it's been nominated for many awards. It's already started winning some awards. As a historian of this period, what was your impression of the film? Well, I don't think 
historians really should expect Hollywood movies to be entirely historically accurate. It's not possible. History is messy, it's chaotic, and it has lots of loose ends and dead ends, and you have to make, when you're making a film or writing a novel, you have to shape it. And in shaping it, you do some violence to it. I thought the film was very sensitively done. I thought it raised a lot of difficult questions in a discreet, thought-provoking, but not over-the-top way. I think it's a very good movie, that it's not the same as the book. The book asks really difficult questions about love and moral corruption that I think are a bit secondary in the movie. I think the movie's main problem in relation to the book and indeed to Hearst himself, the real man, is its attempt to portray what is more or less a normal home and family life for Hearst. And, of course, it makes the whole subject less sensational, but it also kind of brackets out what Hearst spent most of his time doing. If you compare it to other films on the Holocaust, for example, it doesn't try and gloss over the mass murder, the cruelty, the uh, the sadism that were involved. It's, the Holocaust is not a me mechanical, automated impersonal process at all. There was a lot of personal violence that went on. If you look at, say, if you think of Schindler's List, which is probably the most famous movie by Steven Spielberg, that, I think, does portray the concentration camp, particularly in Armand Goethe, a concentration of Plazo, the camp at Plazo. He, he, he sits there on his veranda of his house taking pot shots at Jews, and that is the case in other, other camps as well. But by hinting at and um, backgrounding the cruelty and violence of that went on in the camp, I think the film does raise some very interesting and provoking and disturbing questions about normal life. What is normal life? Can somebody like Hearst live a normal life? And uh, the, the book by Martin Amis raises that in a more acute fashion, which is sort of about love. You know, can you have love in this in this world of horror? Now, the Holocaust is, is clearly the most momentous atrocity committed, certainly the 20th century, probably of all, of all time. Do you think filmmakers have a special responsibility when they're bringing this to the big screen? I do think filmmakers have a responsibility when they are making movies about the Holocaust, I think it's too tempting to, as it were, soften the edges. The uh, Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, for example, I think does that in, in a way that is really does serious violence, I think, to the, uh, the realities of the, of, of the Holocaust. And there are other movies, even Schindler's List, Spielberg, has a sort of happy ending. The point of Thomas Keneally's novel, Schindler's Ark, was that Schindler was a corrupt businessman. He had affairs, he neglected his wife. Uh, he was generally not very moral. And what makes the book so good is that nonetheless, he, he starts by, uh, as we're using in his business in Eastern Europe, using uh, concentration camp prisons because they're cheap, but ends up by protecting them. And that doesn't affect his, the rest of his life at, at all. And 
Spielberg has to have a happy ending where he says he regrets that he couldn't save any more. Uh, he reconciles with his wife. He becomes a moral person, and that's not how it happened in the real story, which is a more complicated one. That was Richard J. Evans. Richard's next book, Hitler's People, The Faces of the Third Reich, will be published by Alan Lane in August. Meanwhile, the zone of interest is still showing in many cinemas in the UK. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.